Well, as we jump into Romans chapter 6, I want to again reinforce some of the illustrations that we've been talking about. Um, I want to talk about these illustrations, and then I want us to pray over our scripture reading. Um, I don't want to pray over the illustration. So I'm going to give you the illustration first, and then we're going to pray and read God's word and put the importance on God's word. Uh, We've been talking about two men, two representatives that represent all of mankind. We have two different categories, the old man, the new man. The old man was represented by Adam, and the new man is represented in Christ, that new life. And we've been talking about this new life, and all of it's about this new position that we have that leads into a new way of living. So as we progress in chapter 6 and into chapter 7 of Roman, you're going to see that Paul's going to go and say, look, this is this new position under Christ that we have, and it's important to understand that new position. And that's going to transform the way you live. So we're going to launch into that in the coming weeks. But we have these two people, and what basically we've talked about, we had the, the pickle illustration, right? And where we are now submerged into this relationship with Christ. And he is the one that's changing us and taking us out of our sinful ways and transforming us into a new relationship with God. So we have this old man, new man. We've talked about all of these things. This morning, I want to talk about two kingdoms. We were in our old life. We were under the kingdom that belongs to this world that we see that Satan right now is temporary ruler over. This, this kingdom of man. That's all about man. It's sinful man. The kingdom of sin. Where sin reigns and has supreme authority. And then we have this other kingdom that is God's kingdom, which really God's kingdom has always been reigning supreme. But we know that Adam rebelled against what God said, and he then moved over into a new kingdom under sin. So now we have two kingdoms. So the reality is, is Paul is bringing out these two aspects that we have two different kingdoms. You can either set yourself up and and reign with the king of kings and the lord of lords, or you can stay and let sin reign and have control over your life. There's these two separate kingdoms. So which kingdom are you in? Are you in the kingdom of God, or are you in the kingdom that's being controlled and reign by sin that leads to death. We see the majority of humanity is living under the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of sin, Satan's kingdom, who's who's ruling over that. And, And we're here at church because we're say that we live under this kingdom, the kingdom of God. The reality is, is the connection point between those two kingdoms is what Christ did on the cross for our sins to take us out of the shackles of sin and to remove those shackles. He paid for us by Christ dying on the cross. His sin, or I'm sorry, his blood and his body was a payment 
for our sin to remove the shackles and the power of sin so now we can move back into the kingdom of God. And that's the reality. We have those two separate kingdoms. Paul's reminding us of that position that we have. We're no longer a part of the kingdom of sin. We don't live there. That's not our king anymore. That's not our Lord. That's not our master. That's not who we're chained to. But now we're chained. Really? Yeah, we've been, we've been set free from sin, but now we have a new master. We have a new position in God's family. He has invited us to the table as, as adoption, as sons and daughters, that he adopted us and he brought us into this new kingdom. See, the reality is, is God's gospel, this good news, that the power of the gospel that we've read from Romans 1 through Romans 5 is this, is not only does it rescue us from the penalty of sin, it rescues us currently from the power and control of sin. And it will one day rescue us from the presence of sin entirely when we're reunited with Christ and God forever in heaven. And so think about those two kingdoms as we read our text in Romans chapter 6 and verses 1 through 14. Or actually verses 5, we're going to look at 5 through 14. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand our new position, our new union with Christ, our new union in our relationship with you as our Father who is in heaven. As we've talked about in the past, that's why when we pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's your kingdom that is to come. It's not our will, but your will be done. Lord, may we think about where we are positioning our life. Lord, may we think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who turned aside not to serve any idol or any god or any government, but Lord, to serve you, to worship you, not to bow down to any other thing. Lord, help us to understand our new position in Christ and how that position transforms our life into an abundant life in your kingdom. So Lord, help us as we look at these verses. Teach us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. In verses five through 14, he goes on and says, For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has eternal dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead 
to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let us not sin, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. It's an amazing text. It has such broad implications. Um, It's hard to, to just unfathom and unpack all of them. But what we've seen in our text up to this point is that our new life starts with knowing the effects of the gospel. Knowing that the power of a right life is only found in the gospel. It's not based on anything that we can do. We cannot secure a right life or a good life by all our good deeds. The Bible tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. So the power of a right life is only found in the gospel. We know that Christ died, that he died to set us free from sin. This is all the things that Romans has been telling us about. You've got to imagine this idea of knowing the effects of the gospel because, and you've got to understand the, the power of what's going on. You think Rome and the fact of these two different opposing kingdoms. I mean, you can think about there is nothing in this time stronger than the government of Caesar in Rome, right? The Roman power and the Roman authority, authority was, and the kingdom of Rome was far stretch and it was broad. It was distracting nonetheless. And so Paul is telling this small fledgling church that, is in, that in the overwhelming power of this great kingdom where they really stand because of the effects of the gospel. They need to know where they begin and their position in Christ. They need to know that their old self The old life was nailed to the cross with Christ. They need to know that just as Jesus rose again from the dead and will live forever, we have been raised in a position in life with Christ that has no end. We need to know that we no longer live under the tyranny of sin. Paul's making a point. God is telling the church in Rome that this is important to know, to continually dwell on in our life. Martin Lloyd-Jones help us to understand these two different opposing kingdoms and what Paul is trying to get and tell the church and what God is trying to remind us. He offers this helpful illustration when he, he says this, talking about Romans chapter 6, in relation to the old sinful self, He said, he pictures two adjoining fields. One is owned by Satan and one is owned by God. They are separated by a road. Before salvation, a person lives in Satan's field, doing his bidding, his work, and is totally subject to his jurisdiction. All the consequences of living in that field 
and decay and death. As he plows in the new field, or after salvation, a person works and is brought into, because of Christ, he's adopted into this new family, and this person works in this other field and is now under God's authority and jurisdiction. As he plows in the new field, however, the believer is often cajoled, sweet-talked, or even persuaded by his former master who seeks to entice him back into the old sinful ways. Satan often succeeds in temporarily drawing the believer's attention away from his new master and his new way of life. But Satan and sin is powerless to draw the believer back into the old field of sin and death. It's a great illustration of what Paul is trying to remind us here. And that is this, is that our new life starts with a non-emotional mental calculation of the facts about our union with Christ. There isn't, this isn't an emotional response. This isn't an emotional plea. This is when God looks at a new believer in Christ who's been saved through the work of Christ, he sees the work that has been written in the new life and says he calculates us as being justified by the work of Christ. We need to know that, that our new life is not emotional. In verse 11, he says, reckon it or account it based on the fact of our union with Christ. We are told to trust God's truth rather than trust our experience. Satan is over there saying, hey, 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 come back, come back. You know, your experience you're not experiencing all the things. Look, I can provide other opportunities. I have other things that'll, that'll change your emotions. I can do, and he's cajoling, he's sweet-talking, and he's trying to beautify sin to pull you back over. But you are in Christ. You are dead. You've been put into a new kingdom, a new family, a new position where Christ is reigning for the rest of eternity. The effects of his death and resurrection is eternal. They can never pull you back. But they can tempt you and take your attention away from your new master. So in living this new life with God the Father, it's it's critical and it's key in moving from sin by focusing our mind on God's grace, the truth of where we are, our position, our identification, our new family, our new position in Christ, our union with Christ. Look at verse 12 in our text. Let not sin therefore... I want you to understand that therefore is, is a simple sequence. You know that last week we talked about it in verse 11. It's the first time that we have a command. And he's giving us another command. Right? There's a sequence here. And that we are supposed to not make an emotional response, but an emotional, a non-emotional calculation of the facts of our union with Christ. Now in verse 12... The result of our new life with Christ, our new position with Christ, he wants us to make practical 
response to that position, a practical daily choice concerning the grace of God. Number one is this. Do not continually let sin govern your life. Do not continually let sin govern your life. It says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. It's interesting is we have this new position that one day we will be have when we actually do die or when Christ returns, which may happen at any time, we will live with him for the rest of eternity and we'll feel the full effects of our salvation. That's a great, that's, man, I look forward to that, right? Full effects. But in the meantime, when the, because of this new position, this new master, this new representative in our life, no longer let sin reign. Because you have a new master. Right? So now he's, he's still focusing on while you live in this mortal world, your mortal body, don't let it reign. Why? To make you obey its passions. You know that word for reign there? Literally means it has to do use and use, it has to do with a king that has total authority over a kingdom. He's saying, look, don't let sin be a master over you, to have authority over you, because you have a new master. By the way, the, the particular tense of this verb, this verb is saying, don't let it continually govern your life. How do you do that? How do we let sin become a governing factor in our life? Well, by, oh, it didn't get in there. By bowing your hearts to its sinful passions. How do we do that? If you look at, in verse 12, it says, to make you obey its passions. Who is making you obey its passions? Sin. Obey means simply to allow those strong desires to control you. To obey means to bow under an authority. He's saying, look, don't let sin reign over you by bowing and letting it have authority in your life. The word for passions literally means it denotes the presence of a strong desire, impulses, longings, passions, cravings. Don't let cravings make you open. And I'm like, oh, when I heard, when I started reading how they use this word lust and passions, I was like, man, I have strong cravings for donuts. I have strong cravings for good barbecued meat. I have strong craving for many different things, don't you? We crave things, don't we? But God, God is telling us, we don't live in this earthly kingdom anymore. We have a new authority. We have a new master. We have a new representative who is our Lord and Savior. And he's saying, look, don't let this sin reign anymore by bowing and obeying the cravings that it presents you in life. Paul is saying, stop letting this continue, implying, by the way, that the readers 
of Romans, this letter in Rome, had already started to let sin reign and have control in their life. The implications of this text is that we will, there will be moments in our life that sin, of sin, but no believers should be ruled by sin. By implication, we see that Paul is recognizing that there will be times when sin's going to entice us. It's going to come in and there's going to be cravings, there's going to be passions, there's going to be lusting after these sinful things. It's going to creep in and God is saying, there's going to be moments like that, but don't let it control you. And he says this in verse 13, stop standing in the presence of sin for the use of unrighteousness. That's what he doesn't want. So don't let it govern your life but also don't present yourself to be used by sin. Do you see there in verse 13? Do not present your members, that's the members of your mortal body, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't let your hands be an instrument for sin. Don't let your eyes be an instrument for sin. Don't let your mouth be an instrument for sin. Don't let your feet be an instrument for sin. Don't let your thinking, your emotions, be an instrument for sin. The word presenting there, do you know how they use that word? They use that word to continually stand beside something. Right? If, you're, if you've had struggles with alcohol, why go stand by a keg? Right? That's, that's silly. If you've struggled with different idolatrous things, why go stand in the presence of it? Why look at it? Why listen to it? Why read it? Presenting. It, it, it's continually appearing before something on a regular basis. It has to do with presenting something to the mind has the idea of continually feeding things into your mind that are unrighteous. It has the idea of continually allowing your body to stand before and appear before unrighteous things. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one with him. You are one with Christ. So verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Don't present your body to sexual immorality because it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. Flee, therefore. Flee. Go away. Don't present, but flee it. It has in our context the idea of saying, well, presenting yourself into the court before the authority of sin. Stop doing that. This world and the sin in this world and the author of sin in this world, that the, the author of this worldly kingdom wants you to use your body as instruments to continue to obey sin. You know that word, it's interesting, but that word instruments literally means as a weapon and tool. 
Don't let yourself become an instrument for sin or as a weapon for sin. Right? That's the idea. We're not supposed to offer ourselves up to those things. It's interesting in 1 Corinthians 6 as he talks about that, don't you know that your, your body was bought with, for a price? You know, and he talks about, you know, verse 9, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't put yourself as instruments to sin. As we think about our position in Christ, stop letting sin reign. Don't offer yourself back to sin. Don't be used by yourself in sin to control your mind with sin or control your body with sin. He says in verse 11, and such were some of you. Because when we were bought with a price and we were adopted into God's family, we were put into a new kingdom. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens, as strangers in this world, to abstain from sinful passions and desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that they will accuse you for doing wrong according to them that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us, on the day that he returns. Paul's not guaranteeing that we do not have sin at all in our lives, but he's saying, so he's saying, live by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Live in this new kingdom, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. He goes on to say in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Right? The the Holy Spirit is fighting a war against the flesh. Don't present yourself to the flesh. Present yourself to the Spirit, new master. And that's what he says in verse 13. He goes on to say, choose to stand in the presence and be used by all of God's righteousness. Present yourself to God and his righteous deeds. In verse 13, the end, he says, but, that's a contrast, right? But is a a connecting contrast. Don't present yourself useful to sin, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That's what Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. When they are presented to follow the things of the world and said, you are going to worship these things, they turned to God and said, no, we will not worship man. We will only worship God. We are not a part of this kingdom. We are, when they turned and said, we will not worship 
and pray to you, and we will not worship you. We are going to turn and worship God. Daniel did it openly. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did it openly. When everybody bowed down, they stood. And they were saying that we are going to worship God and only him. They made a choice to present themselves to God. As a, they gave themselves under the authority of God. God, do whatever you want with my life, but I'm not going to serve the world. I'm going to turn aside. That's what's amazing about Daniel chapter 3, verse 28. It says, and they set aside the king's commands. That's what it means to present yourself not to sin, but set your, set, present yourself to the Lord's righteous deeds. The, the, the second present here says, when it, but, but present yourself, by the way, it's a different verb, tense. It's a command for immediate action. Whatever you're doing in your life, he says, stop letting sin reign in your life because God knows that we struggle with being tempted to sin and draw us back into this old kingdom. And he says, stop putting, going back and presenting yourself to the sin. But he says, right now, make a choice, serve me. Same word for instruments. Be ready to be picked up by God to be used for his service. Are you doing that? The word literally means do it right now. It doesn't say just do it and then can. It's saying make a choice. Joshua said to everybody in Israel, choose this day whom you will serve. It's a choice. If you've been struggling with sin and, and there's things in your life and you've been presenting your body, yourself, your way of thinking to sinful things, either in relationships with people or with relationships to yourself and your body, whatever it is, you choose right now. Just say, I'm going to stop and I'm going to turn and serve God and present myself to him as my master. Stop going into the throne room of sin and walk back and present yourself to God who's your father who loves you and wants to use you for his good deeds to serve him. And it's interesting is we can't do anything good. The Bible says there's no, nothing good, no, not one. He is the only thing that is good. And he wants to use you for his good deeds. The, you know what the blessing about this command is? Choose to stand right now. Choose it. It only takes a choice to get us back on the right path in our relationship to God. You, you see this? Paul is beginning to say, look, this is your position. This is where you live. You're in a new kingdom, new fellowship, new family with God. And it's like now he's starting to get into the everyday things, isn't he? As you walk, how do you live successfully in God's kingdom? Stop presenting yourself to sin. Don't make it easy for sin to lure you. Present yourself to God's authority. 1 Peter 2, he goes on to say in verse 23 and 24, 
says, talking about Christ and how Christ lived, he says, when, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Remember I told you we'd answer this this morning. <laughs> when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued to entrust himself to him. I mean, that entrust himself is the same word. He presents himself under the authority of God. He entrusts himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. You say, you might ask, how do I continually do this? How do I make this right decision to choose to present myself to God in his righteousness? I'm so weak. I'm tempted every day by things I hear, by things I see. I'm tempted to be angry, tempted to be angry at what people do. I'm tempted because I desire things and I don't get it and I want it. I want something so bad that I'm willing to destroy relationships with God's people. I'm willing to destroy my relationships with my relatives or my wife or my husband. How do I get victory over that? Well, look at verse 14. For sin, that for is very important. He's saying for or because of this. He's saying for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Daily victory over sin is because of being under grace. That word under literally means to be under the authority of. Have you thought about that? We've heard the idea, live by grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We live under that grace of what God did for us when he adopted us into his family. We don't under, live under the effects of the law. We live under the effects of his grace. Grace frees us. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in the Christ Jesus. Who are in Christ Jesus. Do you wake up in the morning and think about your relationship with the Lord and the fact that the graciousness in which you live in that relationship? That grace allows us to walk into the throne room of his kingdom and he wraps his arms around this poor sinner and says, I love you, my son. Let me help you with that sin. Let me provide you with righteous deeds. Let me give you the power to conquer the effects of that sin. Here's the idea. When we take our minds and our focus, when we take our minds and our focus and we put it on the grace of God and we make a one-time choice to say and not allow ourselves to be ruled by unrighteousness and sin, we realize sin no longer masters us. Sin will never reign over the one who focuses on God's grace. We're not going to turn and say, ooh, look at that sin, it's so good. We're going to be like, oh, I love this warm, 
loving relationship with my Father in heaven. We're going to love that, being under grace. The law, God's moral law, the law, the Ten Commandments, God's the, the, the law that shows that we're sinners, the law or trying to even keep the law will not ever deliver us from fleshly lust. You, you know what? This, people say, well, just do these things and you won't have that problem anymore. That's not true. Legalism or following laws or following to-do lists or checklists in your life says God will love us if we change. We have to change. We have to do the changing. The good news about the gospel is this, or being under God's grace is another term for living the gospel in your life. Being under God's good news of of his gospel says God will change us because in Christ he has infinitely changed our position, our unity, and his love for us, his eternal love for us. There's a huge difference between trying to change so that way God will love us or rather just being loved by God because of what he's done for us. It's not behaving better. It's actually trusting more what God has done. God wants us to be victorious over sin, and the key is how you think. Focus your mind on God's grace, and God will get victory in those things. One of the questions that people ask is, is change really possible? We know we can learn new skills. We know that we can make over, have an extreme makeover in our life. We can change our appearance, and we try to do all those things. If I change the things I do or I change my appearance, maybe I'll change. But is it possible for a human heart and personality to change? Is it really possible to be free from the things that enslave us? And God's answer in this text is yes. Because the key to that freedom and that change is and only is Lord Jesus Christ. In our conclusion, I want you to think about what we've just what we just figured out is, is that we have an active responsibility to stop letting sin have any mastery in our life, any governing effect. Warren Wiersbe makes a great practical application here. He says. Being a Christian is a a matter of bondage or freedom. Who's your master? Jesus Christ or the old life? Become increasingly what you already are. Stop focusing what you're not. Be transformed based on where where Christ has put you in the heavenlies, in that relationship with with God. Our problem as believers is that we need to stop thinking. We need to earn God's favor. You can't earn God's favor. 
That's what sin says. You need to feel and, and, and you need to do all these things over here to earn. But God says, you're already in my kingdom when I died on the cross for your sins. I transformed you from death into life, the living kingdom. Our, our hearts, by the way, are naturally bent on trying to maintain favor with God. And that focuses on being performance-driven. We need to have this great performance for God. That's not how we change. It's by our relationship in the kingdom of God, focusing on what he's done for us for the rest of eternity. Be who you are. Stop worrying about who you were. You can't. You don't worry about trying to become this. You already are this. A child of God when he saves you. By the way, implication here is this. Sin's goal is not to assist you with your program for happiness and success. We must depend on the gospel. We must depend on his grace. But yet, for some reason, we tend to focus more introspectively. We look in, and we see our sin. And we're like, I need to prove. I need to change. I need to improve my life, rather than being united with who we are in Christ. For you philosophy, logic, thinkers, I, I put this in there. If you focus more on your sin than on your Savior, you will become a neurotic narcissist. If you focus more on your sin than on the Savior, you will become a neurotic narcissist. What do you mean by neurotic narcissist? Well, this. When we focus on our sin, the sin that's miserable, the sin that always leads to pain and destruction in our life, we, we think because it's miserable, it's good for us. We start to see sin and say, ooh, wouldn't that be nice? We're standing over here in this kingdom, in this field, plowing and, and being used for God's righteousness, producing good fruit, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness. That's what he's got us plowing. All these wonderful things, by the way, that the world longs for but can't have. They try desperately for love, peace, joy, contentment. Oh, if I just have this, I'll be content, and it never ends. They want this kingdom, but they're trying to earn it. Sin is over here in this field saying, hey, if come over. It'll be good. It'll feel good. It'll taste good. But it never lasts. It destroys. That's what happens when we focus on Sin more than the Savior. Paul is saying, in our new life with Christ, the answer is this. To our life that we now live in Christ. The only way we change is by focusing on who we are now in Christ. It's about our Savior. It's about our new master 
If you spend all your time trying to figure out how to deal with this sin and you focus on the sin, you're going to be distracted from our union in our new kingdom living with Christ. Stop trying to become who you already are. You are in Christ. It's like this is, you're in, God's taking you out of the deep end of life. And he's put you in the shallow end so you no longer have to try to tread water. And you're like, ooh, I'm going to go tread water to try to get back over here. That doesn't make any sense. When God puts you out of the ocean, out of the frying pan, and into this new life, why go back and say, I'm going to try to get back there? You're already there. The key to change is in Are you letting your new identity inform who you are? Are you trusting him to do that? You will change. You will be loved. You will find joy. You will find great contentment. You'll find the loving arms of God, our Father who truly loves you, will stop complaining about this world, will stop worrying about this world, and will start worrying about who knows the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and will find refuge there. Lord, I pray that we will realize how impactful our new position in this kingdom that you've rule over for the rest of eternity. That we will realize this new identity, this new relationship that you have purchased for us, this restored relationship. And that, Lord, we will find our life in that and make a conscious decision that I am not going to present myself to anybody else but to Christ as my master and not let sin continually come back to reign in my life because it has no power anymore. It, has, it is not on the throne of my heart. But Lord, if I'm struggling in that, I pray, Lord, whoever's here, that they would just look back to Christ, the Savior. Look back at their identity Maybe they don't have a new identity. They're not in Christ. Their identity is the world, the things of the world that are dying and and that are decaying. The Bible says there's a way that seems right unto man, but it leads to death. Lord, there is no one right but you. Lord, may we look to you. May there are those that maybe... They know that they are not following Christ, that they are not in a new relationship. They are still living in the old man, running after sin. But they're not a new man that's being chased by sin. Praise the Lord that sin 
doesn't have to catch us anymore. We can run to you. Lord, I thank you that our life is hidden in you when we are in Christ. You are our protector. You are our shield. You are our defender. You are the lover of our souls. Thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. If someone's here is not in Christ, Lord, would they confess the old man and say, I, I'm a sinner. I, I'm there. I've been doing everything to find favor with you or favor with others. But I need a savior to pay for my sins. I need someone who can do the work that I could never do, and that is Christ. And I put all my faith, I know what he's done for me, and I put my trust in that work of Christ. And Lord, that they'd be saved from their sin, from their separation from you, and that you would bring them into their new life, into your kingdom and their relationship with you for the rest of eternity. Dead to sin once and for all and alive to you. New master, new Lord, new, new everything. New life in Christ. New creation. And Lord, where they begin this new life with you. Lord, may we continue in that life for those that are believers. Give us the strength because we don't have it. But through your spirit, you give us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ, through your spirit to live correctly. So Lord, I thank you for this passage this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.